the first part of just identifying those uh, core values, I mean, that's hard, hard enough, but then going about how are you implementing and living them on a day-to-day -day basis. But let me share, uh, you know, uh, some thoughts around, uh, you know, rules about core value creation. Number one for me is don't do more than three. Every time I am talking with, uh, you know, a company about their core values, oftentimes, uh, you know, if they get to four or five, it's kind of duplicative or it's not really, not really necessary. The more you can tighten it up. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Matt Young, co-founder of Comfort Research, uh, manufacturer of Big Joe brand. Uh, Matt, thanks for making time for this. My pleasure, Jess. Glad to be on. Um, so can you give people the, uh, the, over, the quick story on your 20-year overnight success? <laughs> Uh, I, I love that you uh, you know describe it as a 20-year overnight uh, success. Uh, it it uh, one of the guys on our advisory board about uh, three years ago, Craig Hall, uh, used that exact uh, you know term. He's like, it took you guys 20 years to be an overnight uh, success. Um, I think that that's true in uh, you know in life and in business. You got to put in the, you know the hard work, and there's not a lot of overnight uh, successes. It comes in uh, you know in stages, and so for us. We started this business in college while attending uh, Hope College. My co-founder, partner, Chip George and I came up with this idea for the shredded foam beanbag style chair and started selling them to uh, students uh, at local colleges around Michigan and Indiana and Illinois. And we opened up a little uh, store. We called it the, uh, the foof chair. It's this oversized, overstuffed, big old foam bag. And by the time we graduated, had a little bit of sales. We had opened up a, uh, you know, the store and we're like, you know what, we're going to go for this. Uh, you know, I came from a background of uh, entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur. My, both my grandparents, uh, you know, grandfathers were entrepreneurs. I always knew I wanted to, to be in business. And this was the first idea that really resonated and felt, you know what, this is something that you know, can make work. And the beauty about being a college student is you got nothing to lose. And so since we had nothing to lose, we went for it. And so started, uh, you know, selling, this is, uh, you know, in the late nineties and it was a time when the dot-com players were, uh, you know, starting to come on and a lot of companies would not sell to these internet based uh, retailers, which were really mom and pa, you know, retailers. They were kind of the, the, the pioneers. I mean, Amazon, while, yes, they were in existence, they weren't the, the, the presence that, that they are today. And so most companies didn't want to drop ship and they didn't understand, uh, you know, the reach. And, you know, for us, we took any opportunity we could to, to sell our chairs. And so we started drop shipping for some dot-com folks. Uh, we got an early opportunity with a local uh, store called Meyer, which was really kind of the inventor of the um, Superstore with grocery and general merchandise, and one of the first products we got in there was uh, a forty nine ninety nine uh, version of the uh, of our poof chair, which is what we called it uh, at that time. Started selling there, had some uh, you know decent success, and um, 
We got into some bean bags uh, as well. So the traditional polystyrene, little white bead uh, filled bags. And I love the way that my business partner uh, says it because we don't really make bean bags. What he says is that we, we don't make bean bags. We just happen to make stuff that is filled with beans, which couldn't be uh, you know more true. We do pool floats and we do uh, uh, chairs that are in the shape of uh, you know bean bags or excuse me, bean bags that are in the shape of chairs. We do some kids furniture. We do some toys. And more recently, we've gotten into where we're molding some of those uh, that that foam, that polystyrene into shapes to be able to create outdoor furniture and some other products as well. When that's really a big uh, technology push uh, for us trying to do bring new value into the marketplace in a, in a new and unique way. So I, I think what's fun for me to think about or, or to hear about is, you know, a beanbag chair seems like an ideal thing that a couple of college guys think up to do, right? Like, right. I, I'm thinking about my roommates in college and stuff, right? What's not so obvious is you guys like now a couple of decades later, closing in on a hundred million dollars in sales. Like, what do you attribute that to? There's a lot of people that start a business with their college buddy. Uh, not too many of them <laughs> grow it to $100 million in sales. What do you what do you attribute that outsized success to? Well, I attribute it to a lot of hustling, uh, a lot of uh, getting the right people around you in the form of advisors and business partners. I attribute it to the leaders that uh, we have hired and developed uh, you know, on uh, our team. Um, there's no way that Chip and I could have done this on, on our own. When we first started the, the business, we knew that we didn't know anything. And so we went out and we sought folks that could uh, you know, give us sage advice. And one of those uh, folks, George and Jason uh, Julius, George was president of this bottling company called Beverage America. And he had uh, recently sold that uh, company and started an investment firm with him and his son. And they were gonna invest into golf courses in Michigan and uh, the Midwest. That's what they wanted to do. And we got to know uh, George and Jason and sat down uh, with them. And one of the first things that George said to us is that we are here to give you advice. We are not here to invest in this business. And th that wasn't our intent, right? We just, we just needed advice. Uh, well, three years later, uh, we approached George and Jason. We are like, guys, we need some uh, help. We've outgrown our uh, bank financing and we need to go out and raise some equity. Can you help us go put that story together and raise some equity? So long story short, they came back the next day and said, I think we've got a plan for you. We want to invest. And so we just got really lucky that we happened to have somebody that we knew for three years that we were very comfortable with that ended up becoming our business partner. And as you continue to you know, network, you know, we started an advisory uh, you know, board back in uh, 2007. And again, just trying to bring in folks that could help us and you know, provide that knowledge and insight that we just didn't have. And those uh, advisors, and it goes beyond the advisory board, you know, you've got you know, your professional advisors as well, lawyers and accountants and, and bankers uh, that have been impactful on us uh, you know, as well, that have really helped us you know, along the way. I mean, we really have become a culture-focused you know, company, but we didn't set out to do that. When we set started, we just wanted we just had this cool product, right? We thought it was great and like of course everybody's gonna want this awesome foam filled comfy bean bag that we've uh, you know created. 
But then as things start to change and shift and you're growing, you're doing new things, we had to change as leaders, right? Because you start hiring leaders and what do great people want to do? They want to make great changes. So we needed to figure out a way to guide and align, uh, you know, our, our folks. And so in, it was about 2010, the business, uh, you know, we're doing about 10 million bucks in, uh, you know, sales and George comes to us and it's only George can and says, you guys should really think about putting together a strategic plan. We'd never had one. We were just entrepreneurs hustling, getting, you know, getting out there and uh, chasing opportunities and growing and doing that new things. Uh, you know, we messed a lot of stuff up, up along the way. We almost killed the business at one point uh, back in 2004. We opened up stores uh, and that almost bankrupted uh, the business. Luckily, it didn't. We got out of that and uh, we were able to uh, to grow. But he suggests, hey, let's go out and put together a strategic plan. And since we had never done one before, we decided, OK, we're going to go get some training. So we spent three days in Chicago, Illinois at American Management Association's uh, headquarters there, learning how to put the perfect strategic plan together. And of course, it had all the typical elements, vision and mission and core values and SWOT analysis, pest analysis, customer analysis, vendor analysis, all, all this stuff. And we put together this 120-page plan. It took us about uh, six months to do it. And about six months later, we pull it out, we dust it off, we got pissed. It's like we put all this effort into writing this thing, into doing all of this. And what the heck did it provide for us? It didn't guide and align our organization. And I'm a big believer that the only purpose of a strategic plan is to guide and align the organization. You go out, you pull the information in, and then you, you have your outputs of like, okay, this is the direction that we're going to go. And so... That really started us down a path of after getting pissed and realizing that that traditional way wasn't working for us. It may work for some, but it didn't work for us. We went out and uh, started talking to folks and, and sharing our, our struggles and saying, you know, I wish I could just put this in the summer. I wish I could have it on one page. And again, it was one of those folks on the advisory board, Craig Hall. He's like, Matt, there's a book out there called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. He has a one-page strategic plan in there. You should read this book. So I, it was actually in my library. Uh, I hadn't read it yet. And so I read this book, and I'm like, wow, there's some genius uh, you know, in here. The guy, you got to read the book to understand his format. But this is what I love about the, the author is that he says, do it however works for you. This is the idea. This is the concept. And the basic concept was big idea flowing down to the, the measurements. And then the stuff in between is how you're going to get there, right? And so we just started using a spreadsheet and created the boxes of, okay, these are our big ideas, uh, you know, the vision and mission statements. And we always liked the vision statement, but the mission statement never really resonated with us, right? The mission statement, uh, you know, seemed to drone on and you could take pretty much most mission statements that we had seen and apply it to any company. Um, it's going to usually said something like, we're going to be the global leader of customer centric manufacturing excellence of some sort, you know, and it's just I don't like, know. Matt, I didn't hear the word synergize in there. I think. Uh... Oh yeah. Yeah. You got to have that in there and oh, don't forget innovation. And it just, it didn't work. And so luckily for us, we got introduced to, an, to another book uh, by Simon Sinek, Start With Why. Uh, love that. If you haven't, uh, you know, read it, 
just watch the TED Talk. I love it. In 15 minutes, you can get the concept. And it's really about being purpose-driven. Why do you do what you do? How do you do it? And what exactly are you doing? And so we use that as our headers for our columns. And so we've had our purpose. And then we started looking at our core values. And this is where I really hope that we can share with others some of our struggles so they can avoid some of the pitfalls that, that, that we fell into of trying to identify your core values. Because what we did, and I think this is what most companies do, is we sat down with our leadership uh, team and we said, okay, you know, what are our core values? And, you know, words like innovation and uh, great place to work and we're going to be fun and we're going to ship on time and we're going to be great to the customer and we're going to be great to our vendors and everything's going to be awesome. It's all going to lead to profitable growth, man. You know, it was these 10 words and like we could never really remember them. It's like, okay, we'll put it in a circle because they all are of equal importance. And then we try to put it in a pyramid all built up from the bottom up to, you know, profitable, uh, you know, growth. And then we're like, oh, no, it, it funnels down. It's a funnel. And I was given a tour one day to, I believe it was a bank. I, I don't remember at this point in time, but I'll never forget how I felt that day. I'm so proudly talking about our core values. And I got to number eight and... I could not remember the eighth, ninth, or tenth core value. <laughs> and if we as leaders cannot remember them, how can we have any expectation that anybody else is going to remember them? And if you can't remember them, how the heck are they core? How the heck are they going to guide and line your, your team, your folks, your entire uh, you know organization? How can they really even be core? And so I'm a big believer that not much changes until you feel some pain or you get embarrassed. Well, that was painfully embarrassing, not being able to remember the, these, these core values that we're so proud of, right? And so, you know, this is where um, I really wish there was a way to, to, to do it. But I, can, I, I definitely feel that we've uncovered some ideas and concepts of what a good set of core values looks like. So for us, it wasn't like sitting down with the leadership team. Uh, it was you know, sitting down with the leadership team. And then I was talking to the advisory board. Then I was talking, uh, you know, to others. And it ended up just happening one day. It was, you know, there was no real process to uncover it other than being seekers and realizing that the traditional way of identifying core values wasn't working for us. And what happened was an advisory board meeting, one of the guys on our advisory board, Jeff Hutzel, he just makes this off the cuff comment. You know, you guys find a better way to do stuff. That's you know, that, that's what you guys do. And the meeting went on and didn't really think uh, that much about it. But that night I woke up, I'm like, holy cow, that guy just gave us our first core value. We're just trying to find a better way in everything that we're doing, whether it's making a beanbag, whether it's doing a strategic plan, identifying core values, how we're going to make the beanbags, how we're going to distribute them, everything we were doing, we're always trying to find a, you know, a better way. We're just never really satisfied with the status quo of, the way everybody else was uh, doing it. So I write this down and I can't sleep. My mind's just spinning. I'm like, there's gotta be other words or phrases that we're using that we're not even being uh, purposeful about. It's just coming out. And it came to me, it's like, you know, we talk about having high expectations and expecting the best, uh, you know, of ourselves. And I love the way that my business partner, George says, he's like, expect the best, screw the rest. <laughs> and so I write down, expect the best. So the next day, I'm, I see my business partner, Chip, and I'm like, Chip, I think I've identified two of our core values. What do you think? Find a better way, expect the best. 
And he just looks at me and he's like, and we want to do the right thing. I'm like, yeah, man, that was it. Like it just kind of came to us in this flurry and we shared it with the team and everybody was jazzed about it and it resonated with everybody. And it wasn't this long laundry list of words that were aspirational that we hoped to be someday. No, it was really who we were, who we are on a, on a day-to-day basis. And that experience really shaped my belief and I've created some rules around what does a good set of core values look like? Well, and it's this, go ahead. Well, I want to jump in there because I think for me, like as we talked um, beforehand, you know, 300 episodes into this thing or whatever, I get to hear about a lot of people's plans and how they're doing things and stuff. But I think it was so impressive to me, and I, I don't make, want to make sure you don't skip this part, is the reinforcement. Like, you guys have done, what, close to a billion dollars in revenue? And, and so it's so easy for things like that to end up being just a poster on the wall that people walk by. And hearing about, like, how you guys reward and how you guys recognize and that it's, like, it's actually baked into what it's like to work here. It's not just the poster on the wall. Um, so finish your thought there, but I really want to, I really want people to hear what you told me on our, on our previous call about what it looks like for people actually getting recognized for living this instead of just like, oh, it got mentioned at the annual team meeting or, you know, somebody talked about it, you know, guys, make sure to live our core values. And that's all that you hear about it. Yeah. I I mean, the first part of just identifying those uh, core values, I mean, that's hard, hard enough, but then going about how are you implementing and living them on a day-to-day basis? But let me share, uh, you know, uh, some thoughts around, uh, you know, rules about core value creation. Number one for me is don't do more than three. Every time I am talking with, uh, you know, a company about their core values, oftentimes, uh, you know, if they get to four or five, it's kind of duplicative or it's not really, not really necessary. The more you can tighten it up, the simpler you can make it the more likely you're going to be to be able to implement those core values and people are going to live them and they are going to be core. One of my favorite examples of a company that is keeping it simple and being true to their core is this company in uh, Holland, Michigan. Um, uh, Elzinga Volkers, I believe is their name. And they have one core value and that is be unmistakable. Be unmistakable in everything that you do and that drives everything that they do. And I I, I absolutely love it. If I could have got, you know, been that good and gotten it down to one, I, I would have. But we have three. And usually when people keep it tight, keep it simple, it works great. So that's kind of my first rule. It's like don't do more than three core values. It's not necessary. Keep it simple. The next one is, and this is where I feel that a lot of people uh, fall off, is it needs to be authentic. It needs to have your fingerprints all over it. It can't be aspirational. Don't just do, you know, words have it be something that really makes you unique. What makes you unique and special when you build uh, all these things uh, you know, together? And then the last one, which I feel is the most, one of the most common mistakes that I see when people are identifying core values, is don't just do the stuff that's the price of admission, right? And what I mean by that is people will put as one of their core values, integrity. Well, if I don't have integrity as one of my core values, am I suggesting to anybody that you should act without integrity? No. Honesty, that's another great one. It's like, if you're not listing honesty, are you saying that, oh, well, we're not honest. If you're not honest, if you don't act with integrity, no one's gonna be around you. No one's gonna buy your product. Your people are gonna leave. So no, these are just general expectations that you have to do. Oh, and then my, my personal favorite 
profitability. You are a for-profit company. If you do not have profits, you will not be in business. Of course you have to have profitability. These are just things that you have to have. It's the price of admission for being in an well, organization. And it's interesting to your point about not having more than three. Um, and I know we're about done with part one of the episode here, but uh, back to your point about not having more than three. Like it sounds like such a, um, it, you know, it doesn't sound like some huge aha moment, right? But when you when you just go through the research on the on human capacity to remember things, and yep. and they just talk about how like once you get over three or four, um, it, it's really exceedingly unlikely for people to remember if it hasn't been drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled, right? And so when you put like to your point about integrity and honesty, like a they're not differentiating you. Like please find me a company that doesn't claim to have that. But B, you're now reducing right. you're now reducing your team's ability to actually remember and live those ones that are different because they're trying to they're trying to remember that you know honesty and integrity were on the list, right? And you're now pushing you're pushing those boundaries where they stop being able to remember the ones that really are going to set you apart, right? You got it. Simple is hard, right? I, I love the quote, and I'm going to probably uh, murder it, but the general idea is: sorry for the uh, three page letter. If I would have had more time, it would have been shorter, <laughs> right? Simple is hard. And, and, and the more that you can simplify you know, your communication, simplify your business, simplify everything uh, that, that you're doing, the more likelihood that you're going to be able to guide everybody in the same direction, align them uh, you know, together, that it'll be memorable. You, you got to boil it down to, to the essence. And, uh, well, you, and you're right. It, there's such a truism that you can only remember so much. I mean, I know I can only remember so much yeah. and if we can boil it down to what is the most, you know, important things as simple as possible and communicate it in a way that is authentic to us, man, you are going to win. Well, and I think the thing that I really liked about you saying is this idea of not just picking aspirational things. I think like uh, as leaders, I think I suffer from this. Most of my friends who are CEOs do too. Like when the company becomes a bit of your identity, right? We have all these ideas of what we wish we pe people thought about our companies. And so it's really easy to confuse like, um, like PR opportunity with how we're actually going to operate, right? And, and so the, the thing that sucks about that is when I know when I get sucked into these like ideas of we're going to, you know, become the biggest company in the world at such and such, you know, different businesses I've been in, um, the staff are like, it, it stops being meaningful to them, right? Because it's this aspirational wish. It's not like a actionable, what do I do in five minutes? Um, and uh, I, I really feel like uh, the fact that you guys have pulled it back to three, that they're actually livable, you're actually rewarding them it is kind of magic because it takes, you know, it takes restraint to do that instead. Um, listen, uh, this is, you know, this is a good place to end for for episode one here everybody please tune back in we're going to hear about more of of what it looks like at comfort research of how they actually live this and uh and you can make your own observations about why they've done about a billion dollars in sales as a result so thanks everybody